We need to get music. No, we do. Like some sort of intro music, like a da 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 da. Thinking about this the other day, like it's just us talking. I know. We need a little, a little just something to get people in. With something not copyrighted. Or yeah, something not copyrighted and something that's also not like do 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 cops crime yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah something tasteful <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay I'm ready all right hi I'm Hannah hi I'm Chris and this is Thin Blue Crime a true crime podcast for your friendly neighborhood abolitionist how are you doing <laughs> you know life's been lifing life's been really lifing this week. Life really life. Fatigued. I heard. I don't know any of my astrology people out there. I don't know what's up, but it's it's been heavy. No, because what is happening? Because what is happening in the air with the stars and the moon? The fact that my week started. So I was gone all last week. Part of why we're like filming late is because Mm -hmm. we were both really busy last week. I was on a work retreat in Seattle, and I saw someone. Someone recognized me on the street from TikTok and I was so gagged. Like that was so cool. But um, I got back Sunday and I had been anticipating a card for my grandparents for my birthday. And it was there outside my door, opened. And I was like, that's shitty. And then I opened it and the card had been like crinkled up and stuff. Like it was just whatever. And I know how much money was in the card. And I'm like, they took money. Like that's really shitty. I like a normal person in their 20s. And I'm like, I'm going to go to social media and complain about it. (laughs) Yeah. The video blows up. Over a million views. What? People are like really nice at first being like, oh, like you should do something like we support you. And then I'm like, yeah, and I'm not going to call the police about it. And people are like, you're a fucking idiot. (laughs) I was like. It's a card. Like, yes, I'm upset about it, but like the police? I know because I saw your response TikTok. I didn't see the original video, but yeah, I saw I scrolled through the comments for a second and I was like, "Huh?" Like like it was so not that deep. And like, yes, okay. Did I post on TikTok to get some sympathy to like have people be like, "Oh, poor you, Hannah." <laughs> so that I could feel better because I was upset. I was upset. I was tearing up a little bit. I was like, this is so shitty. Yeah. Upset enough to involve the police. I think that some people like really need to evaluate. Like they really do because people, and not only upset enough, other people were like, oh, you should call the police. When I said that I was not going to involve the police, people were like, you're a bad fucking person. And that's why, that's why that happened to you. That's why you got robbed because you're a bad person because I won't call the police over a card. They're acting like you're watching someone get murdered and are like, um, I'm not doing it. No, literally. And I think that these people just like couldn't possibly fathom that like some people wouldn't want the police around. Like, yes, if like somebody broke into my apartment and broke a bunch of my shit and stole stuff, maybe, maybe. I would file a police report so that insurance would cover things. Right. If somebody was like attacking me outside my building, like, yeah, I'd probably call the police. Somebody took a card. Be fucking for real right now. Be fucking for real. That's hard. Yeah, that makes no sense to me. Okay. 
like yeah i do judge you if you'd call the cops but beyond that like no one's saying you can't you literally saying that i don't i, I just the cops. i don't want to and like people couldn't they couldn't get that they they don't understand that some people might not want to call the police because maybe they won't don't want the police in their business i don't like how many times since we started this podcast have people been like oh my god be careful like i don't want the police in my home yeah no thank when you people are already telling me to be careful about them like let's be serious or maybe i don't want the police to come here because my neighbor my neighborhood, my building is full of black people and I don't want them harassing black people who yeah. probably did nothing or like maybe I just don't want to go and have to deal with whatever bullshit investigation that they would put out. Like they, people couldn't comprehend that there was an alternative to getting the police involved. Also, what the fuck would they do? Well, because I feel like the sympathy that you can get from TikTok would be more healing than anything the police. Yeah, no, TikTok actually had some great ideas. They were like, set a trap by putting out a card that'll throw glitter at them. And then you break it to their door and then you know who did it. That's actually helpful. The police weren't going to do that. The police were not going to do anything. They're going to be like, you're a dumb idiot for leaving your mail out in your lobby for a few days. And I'm not going to do anything to rob you, but I am going to harass all of the people on your street corner and i'm gonna tell them it was you that's what the police would do yeah exactly and be like wait does it smell like Like, it's been a saga it's been a saga to to this day right now as we speak on my phone people are like why don't you just call the police well we're gonna talk about why later aren't we Literally, literally the dots don't connect okay so yeah let's get into why before that uh this is i guess cops in the culture but this is just big news and i think most people that would be listening to this podcast would be tuned into this adnan from serial right adnan syed is free the charges against him have been dropped and if you're not well okay the charges against him weren't, that's not the correct language. The language would be the conviction was vacated. 30 days for the prosecutors to retry, but it doesn't yeah. sound like they have plans to. Yeah, exactly. There's 30 days for the prosecutors to decide if they want to drop the charges or seek a new trial. And 30 days, I think, as of Wednesday. So less than that now. Um, if you haven't heard about this case, it was a case where he was tried for the murder of his girlfriend at the time, Hey, and it really, really blew up because of the podcast serial. Well, and I just want to say he was tried when he he was only 17 when it happened. Like he was a kid and put in jail. Yes. And it should have, I mean, let's be honest. It should have been big long before this story. Mm -hmm. We talk about biases all we want. Um, anyway, sorry, continue. Yeah. I mean, you you said it well it blew up because of the podcast serial which was such like a monumental cultural moment as well like his case was kind of a scope for something so not to say that there's anything larger than this man's life right but his case allowed us to like have like an even wider lens on the justice system i know for me serial for me i mean this case happened about 20 minutes from where i grew up so it was already kind of close, so we had seen it in the local news. That's crazy. Uh, but then, well, not we, because I was pretty little. But 
But your family like, you, was happening. Like, you were in this community. Yeah. And then cereal was happening when I was in high school. And I did a persuasive argument based off of cereal uh, for a paper about why I thought Adnan should be released. And around that time, too, they were having uh, like an appeal case where they were saying that his lawyer at the time was in contempt, basically. And there's just been like over and over again things with this case that cause reasonable doubt. Yeah, that was my thing. First of all, like anyone who hasn't watched Serial, like you just have to go watch, listen to Serial. You have to go yes. listen to it. It like was a game changer podcast for me. It just like really got me thinking, got my wheels turning. Like, honestly, I feel like that podcast kind of led us here to this podcast. Like, no, I, don't I was know thinking about this. It's so something. full circle. Like this if not for serial not to say that like serial is like the end all be all of podcast like it's a really really good podcast i'm sure that somebody could find flaws in it but like mm-hmm. it got my mind thinking yes which is what we're hoping to do too but one of the things about the way that the reporter sarah sarah is her name mm-hmm. it's sarah koenig sarah koenig one of the things about the way she tells this story is that like she talks about this case from all different angles and says like yeah I don't really know what happened in this case, but what I do know is that there was a lot of reasonable doubt and this man by our criminal justice system as is should not be in prison. And yeah. like that I think is really important. Um, when you're talking about just like any sort of criminal justice reform, like it's not necessarily about like all every little detail of like what happened on that day of the crime. Sometimes it's about like, was this case fair? And this case was not fair. Mm-hmm. And it's so much of the case relied on this idea that he can couldn't remember every detail of that day. And I remember Good. literally thank you for Miss oh God, I wish I could remember her name, but my sophomore English teacher who had us listen to that episode and then had us pick a, picked a random day and had us write in our journals a whole recount of that day. No one remembers a random day unless there's something really significant. And I think that like these people's like thought process was that like there was something significant that day. This woman died. And like, yes, 100%. But I was like a victim of a crime a few years ago. And I could not tell you every detail of that day, Mm -hmm. of that week, of anything that happened around there, just because like, it was a little bit traumatic. And that was me as a victim. But then I'm willing to bet my friend who like, was not a victim but knew about what happened to me she couldn't tell you what happened that day either so like it's just not something that people think about like something bad happening doesn't necessarily magically make you remember everything and it's not like he found out the day that the day that she died was was he didn't find that out then she was yeah, yeah. for a while too so yeah they're just beyond reasonable doubt i i recommend serial so fully it was really for me First of all, the first podcast I think I really listened to. And then also a gateway to abolition, I would say. Yeah, it's no, it's definitely a gateway, especially it has three seasons. The mm-hmm. third season that like dives into the criminal justice system from a Cleveland, Cleveland, Cleveland um, courtroom. That season like really is like microdosing abolition mm-hmm. because she's talking about how like our policing system, our justice system, like it's really broken is how she frames it. I would say corrupt. 
and designed to be so but like she's like look how broken our system is fantastic reporting and i'm just like so happy for adnan and his family i do have sympathy for hayes family because they thought this case was done and now it's not and i imagine that that's like very traumatic as well i also Um, imagine the whole the whole podcast was so traumatic i mean it was a like national sensation yeah and it was yeah i could i can't imagine actually i hope that they do get the justice that they deserve like i hope that they can find the truth in this case whatever that may be but like i can't imagine having to sit and wait for that yeah apparently suspects and that's kind of why the charges were dropped um Marilyn Mosby, who is the state attorney, yeah, the state attorney in Baltimore, was saying that because of, like, I think it's called the Brady, a Brady violation. Yeah. To vacate his conviction. Uh, But then there's still some, some back and forth between Mosby's office and the attorney general, Rosh, and... I know that there's other things going on outside this case that are in, incredibly political in terms of Mosby and Frost's office and they're not going for re-election and so on. But I'm almost like... The center of this case to me is that like a man is freed who has been incarcerated yeah, for 23 why years. I, I, get politics. I get politics. Why are you playing politics with someone's life? You know what I'm saying? And I, you could argue that like politics is always playing with someone's life, but like in this situation, you're letting your political whatever interfere, take away from, distract you from potentially someone being wrongfully incarcerated for decades. I don't know. Figure it the fuck out. Yeah. I'm, I'm, it's a great day to de-incarcerate. It's always a great day to de-incarcerate. It's a great day to de-incarcerate. Like, so that's where my focus is. Anyway. <laughs> but that's it for Cops in the Culture. Cops in the Culture, congratulations to Adnan. I heard he was sending voice memos and tweeting, which is like, that's exciting. I don't know. Yeah. You get to be a real person outside of our carceral system. Yeah, I hope you get some healing. Switching gears this week. This week, we are going to be talking about Len Davis, a New Orleans police officer who, among many other crimes, put a hit out on Kim Groves, a witness who reported him for beating an unarmed man. But the story is about way more than just him, because how does someone who community members described as a terrorist, who was suspended six times, who received 20 official complaints in just a five-year span, who was known to be extorting community members for protection money and under investigation by the FBI, not only remain a police officer, but received the department's Medal of Merit. Hannah. A corrupt system. (laughs) Yeah, this this one's a doozy. Like, this was one where as I was researching and I had to do more digging on this than I should have had to do. Mm-hmm. I had to do more digging on this than the last two cases. And I think that this case is like in a lot of ways, the most egregious. 
mm-hmm. I think it's very telling that there was not as much like news media on it. To be fair, it was like in the early 2000s, but like, I don't know. This is, this is not good. So let's get into it. As I said, it was very hard to find background information on Lynn Davis. Mm-hmm. I really had to dig in, but it's important to note for context that this is a really dark time in New Orleans history with it being one of the deadliest cities in the country in the 80s and 90s and had a notoriously corrupt police department. So most of the articles I could find on this story did a, didn't really want to address like what led up to this type of criminal activity. They just wanted to be like, look, we stopped it. Good old policing put an end to this. Like they didn't want to address that. Like New Orleans in general was having a lot of issues, particularly the New Orleans Police Department. However, I did read that he grew up in the projects in the ninth ward of New Orleans. This is a really rough area to grow up in to the point where they actually brought it up in his trial in an effort to get leniency. Mm. Uh, he was exposed to a lot of crime and violence at a young age. And when you look at the crimes he would later commit, there are things that he likely was kind of desensitized to because he would have seen them all the time growing up. Drug dealing, extortion, retaliatory violence, uh, violence against women. Like these are things that were present in his community growing up. Um, so I don't want to say, oh, it's like not surprising that he did them in his life, but like being exposed to that type of violence and crime young will have an influence on you in the future, just inevitably. Right. And that's so interesting that they brought it into his trial because, yeah, I, I didn't I haven't heard that used so much as a defense when it when it's a really valid one in that like violence doesn't happen in a vacuum. But it's also one that m- really would force us to question how we treat crime. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about ways that this situation could have been avoided, when we talk about abolitionist solutions to this case, addressing the violence in this man's youth would change the outcome of this case. Right. Without a doubt. By the time that he enrolled in the police academy in 1987, he actually already had a record. According to public records, two years before he began police training, he was arrested for battery urinating in public and one other charge that was undisclosed these charges were forgiven when he entered the police academy but while he was at the academy he was also suspended for unspecified disciplinary reasons battery however he was allowed to resume his training and become an officer later that year okay i think it's interesting that he literally had a record and was disciplined in the academy, but was still allowed to be a police officer. That's crazy to me. Battery particularly, right? Like we're going to choose someone who has had a, like a violent past. We're going to choose to give a gun and unwielding power. Why did they think that this man should be a police officer? Like, well, with a record, have like, a hard time finding. I don't even think we now. should have police officers, but if we are going to have them, I most certainly do not think that they should be someone who had a record for battery. Like, what the fuck is going on here? Yeah, I don't even know what to. I don't even know what to think about that one because usually in these cases, I'm like, oh yeah, fucking of course they don't care about domestic violence. But I'm like, wait. <laughs> Unfortunately, and unsurprisingly, being a police officer did not change his behavior. 
as I said in the intro, he was written up repeatedly. Mm -hmm. Reports vary on how many times he was suspended, some saying four, some saying six. But one of his suspensions was for 51 days after he was accused of beating a woman in the head with a flashlight in 1992. Throughout his seven years as a police officer, he was accused of brutality, physical intimidation, discourtesy, and theft. He was investigated by Internal Affairs numerous times and allegedly had a file as thick as a phone book with Internal Affairs. I, 52 days. Yeah, he was, he was suspended for 52 days. That's two months. He was suspended for two months for beating a woman. That's like a, that's literally summer vacation. Like, like that's man should never have become a police officer. Once he was a police officer, he should have been fired more times than I can count. Like, it just gets me so mad that like, we talk about this crime was avoidable. Why was this man given a weapon? And why are we, uh, and he's the same one arresting people for doing not even half as bad of the shit he's doing. Yes. And I don't want to. While he's doing it. Yes. And I don't want to hear this like, oh, it was a while ago. This was the 90s. This was the 90s. Like there are officers who were hired at the same time as him who are still police officers. Yes. And I, I wonder if they uphold the same standard that Len Davis does. Despite all of this, he received two different awards while on the force, including the Medal of Merit, which is the second highest honor in the department. <laughs> makes makes a lot of sense. Who got the highest? <laughs> Stop. No, because I want to know now. And where is he at? Len Davis originally worked in the 5th District, which was known as Bloody 5th as it accounted for nearly one third of the city's murders. It was considered a dumping ground for bad officers and sure enough, Len Davis fit right in. It was here that people began calling him Robocop and the desired terrorist. And this is because he was a large man, over six foot, over 200 pounds, and he was known to terrorize his community. And of course, let's throw the worst officers in the neighborhood that needs the most support. That's exactly what we should do. And then let's be surprised that like crime is bad there. You have the police officers are committing crime. As a matter of fact, he had working relationships with the criminals in the city. Like he was working with them. I'm going to get to it in a second. But like this man was actively funneling crack into these neighborhoods. It's one way to do community engagement. This makes you start to think when people talk shit about like the south side of Chicago and how violent it is. It's like, hmm, I wonder what the police officers there are like. I also hear this narrative a lot from like cops or pro cop people being like, well, it's just so disillusioning. These cops that come in trying to do good and then they see these neighborhoods and the same people doing the same shitty stuff. And I'm like, let's not act like they're just observers of something horrible like also like and not instigators some of these people are coming from those neighborhoods anyway like len davis was from the fifth ward yeah from the ninth ward like the the violence in new orleans shouldn't have been shocking to him like quite frankly anyone who lives in chicago who goes up to chicago if you're a police officer there you grew up there and then you 
start working there. Like you shouldn't be surprised that there's violence there. Like be serious. Also think about the people who actually live there. You get to go into work and see the terrible shit and then go home. They're Mm -hmm. stuck there always. At one point, things got so bad with his behavior in the fifth ward that community members went to their representatives and asked for him to be transferred out. So he was transferred out, you know, not fired like he should have been. But even though he was transferred out of the fifth ward, he maintained his relationships with people there, especially Paul Hardy, who was a drug dealer who had been arrested twice on suspected murder charges, but was cleared because witnesses often disappeared around him. Um, He had a reputation to not be messed with and they really couldn't get cases to stick when it comes to him. I also read somewhere that like Paul and Len knew each other from like when they were younger before they were police officers, but Mm -hmm. I didn't find a verified source for that. It would make sense though. They both grew up in the same projects. Mm -hmm. So it's possible. Yeah. Anyway, Len and Paul, they're besties. And they're regularly hanging out at bars in the ninth ward. And that is where their like criminal relationship kind of starts. And it's actually rumored that the two of them and Len's partner, um, Sammy Williams, went out to one of those bars the night that they performed the hit on Kim Gropes. And before we, but before we get to that crime, let's talk about another crime. So the FBI in 1993 decides to investigate Len Davis after a local drug dealer, Terry Adams, went to the FBI to complain that he was being extorted by Sammy Williams and Len Davis. Okay. This is like not an uncommon thing in New Orleans back then. And I would argue even today, police officers will look the other way for a fee. And that's what was going on here. Um, Len Davis and Sammy Williams were going to drug dealers and saying, hey, if you pay me, I'll look the other way. You can keep doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Terry Adams didn't want to pay anymore, so he went to the FBI. Terry Adams goes to the feds, and the feds are telling him, okay, if you cooperate with our investigation and help us set up this sting operation, we're going to let you off the hook for the drugs. So at this time, Davis and Williams are guarding a warehouse containing 100 to 150 kilos of crack cocaine for $100,000. They recruit other officers in to help them guard the warehouse and eventually get up to seven officers involved in the scheme, and they agree to split the 100K evenly. As an aside, this is really fucked up because, like, the crack epidemic is what was contributing heavily to the violence in New Orleans. Right. Like crack was ripping that city apart and the police were actively making the problem worse. So wait, sorry, can you rewind it back? So they were guarding this warehouse on behalf of like local something that they did often. They would like guard the drugs, but this was on behalf of Terry Adams, the guy the FBI. So that's a whole other thing. The FBI is also like sending crack into these neighborhoods, which we already knew, but like, what the fuck? So they're guarding this warehouse that has a hundred kilos of crack in it. Mm-hmm. And um, not even just like they're guarding it. They're making sure like the police don't find it. They're like guarding it from like other drug dealers. Like they're just like letting crack go into their neighborhoods. Right. 
And then they're shocked that like there's violence in these communities. They're, like ensuring crack goes into those neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. And this didn't, I'm going to say it. This didn't just happen in New Orleans. This is happening in LA. This is happening yes. in New York. This is happening in Detroit. This is happening in Baltimore. Like the violence that we see in black communities, especially in the eighties and nineties are because of shit like this. There's a lot of moving parts to this investigation that the FBI was having, and I don't want to get into all of them, but I do want to share this detail from a write-up of the investigation by Dean Shapiro for the Crime Library. At one point during the summer of 1994, while the operation was going on, some of the officers complained about sitting outside the warehouse in their unair conditioned patrol cars. They requested an air-conditioned van, and one was provided for them by FBI agents posing as drug dealers. Unbeknownst to them, the van was wired to FBI headquarters. Recordings made from the bug van revealed an even more seamy side to the underworld mentality of certain members of the New Orleans Police Department. In one conversation, two officers discussed betraying their buddies and taking over the operation themselves. They talked about... they talked about ripping off the drug dealers and possibly even killing them so that they could keep the money for themselves. Oh. Protect and serve. Am I right? Like you, like just the start of that being like, mm, I need some air conditioning. Like, I need air conditioning while I guard this warehouse full of crack. Protect, like... <laughs> And then moving from that to being like, ooh, let me murder these people. Ooh, let me rip off this people. Let me murder the people that gave me the van. So that I can go. And then, but also the layer of the FBI spying on them, being like, let me catch them in a crime while the FBI is literally committing crimes. Like, Like, there's so many levels to how gross and problematic this is. And I think, like, that's what's so frustrating about this case. That's why we have this podcast like i could go on a whole other tangent that could take hours about like this shit is not surprising it's horrifying like reading it i actively am horrified but like of course yeah that's what was happening protect and serve and again it just brings me like to the carceral state like it's like so many different layers and then think about the people in the neighborhoods that were affected by this and then it just like keeps going and going and going yeah well and here's what's also really frustrating about this because at this point the fbi could have shut down their investigation and arrested all of these guys like they had more than enough evidence to shut the warehouse down because there was crack in the warehouse Mm -hmm. and they had more than enough evidence that the police were involved in guarding the warehouse like they could have wrapped it all up but they allowed crack to continue to flow into these neighborhoods because they hoped that a bigger bust would happen in the future. Something that we see again and again throughout all of history when it comes to the FBI. Right. And had they acted earlier, like had they intervened at this point, Kim Rose would still be alive today. Mm. Like Kim Rose is dead because the FBI wanted to play games, wanted to like what we were talking about earlier, wanted to play political games with someone's life. Mm. But yeah, they wanted to continue the operation in pursuit of this big bust that they wanted to pull in as many officers as possible so that they could clean up the department, something that obviously never happened. Now, let's talk about Kim Groves, because like, I do want to center her in this story. 
1994, Kim Groves was living in the Lower Ninth Ward with her 78-year-old grandmother and her three teenage children. She worked part-time as a security guard at the Superdome and did what she could to support her family. It is likely that she was doing all of this while struggling with addiction. And I say this because it's going to come up in the case. Mm -hmm. But I want to look at it as she was doing everything she could to support her family while struggling with addiction. Yes. And that is incredible. Um, all reports say that she was a very caring person, that she like really was dedicated to her family. And this is something that she struggled with. On October 11th, 1994, she witnessed Len Davis and Sammy Williams chasing down a teenager named Nathan Norwood. And she witnessed them hitting this teenager with their guns. Kim approached the officers asking why they were assaulting her nephew. I don't really know if this was her nephew or not, but, you know, that's what black people do. In they, familial terms. Um, but she asked them why they were assaulting her nephew. And after some heated words, she went to internal affairs and reported both officers picking them out in a photo lineup. Even though private citizen reports are supposed to be kept confidential, Len Davis somehow found out about the report the day it was filed and immediately swore vengeance against Kim. He began planning the hit on her that night. Now, if you remember, Davis was already being investigated by the FBI at this point. So right. there was a detailed record of his conversations around this hit, like his phones were tapped. So again, I'm really frustrated with the FBI because they did nothing. They're listening to him having these conversations about this hit and they do nothing. Right, because they decided they're going to wait for a quote-unquote bigger case, which just shows you how much they value human life. Yes. Len Davis talks to Paul Hardy about performing the hit. The two of them begin stalking Kim, and on October 13th, they are recorded calling each other back and forth about her whereabouts, what she was wearing, and who she was with. And these conversations, again, were all recorded by the FBI. The next part of the story I want to tell from Kim's family's point of view. So here's an excerpt from a letter that Jasmine, Kim's daughter, wrote for the ACLU. The day my mother reported Officer Davis was the day before my 13th birthday. Because it was the night before my birthday, my mom was planning my party. My cousins and I were having a sleepover and we were playing cards. My mom came into the room and started singing happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. I smiled the whole time she sang because she always made me feel special. For some crazy reason, I felt like she knew she would not get to wish me a happy birthday the next day. Mm. After she walked out the door, within seconds, the phone rang. I was always the one to run to answer it, but that time I wish I hadn't. As I said hello, all I heard was a woman's voice screaming into the phone. Kim has just been shot and I think she's dead. At that moment, my heart stopped. I was stiff. I could not think. I could not talk. I was stuck. I was wishing she'd say she had it wrong. It was a mistake. I dropped the phone and ran screaming to my family. As we all ran out of the door, we saw my mother's body lying on the street, lifeless, her eyes still open. She had the biggest hole in her head that you could see straight through it. As people consoled us, my grandfather picked... I am going to leave that sentence out, actually. Only a few months later did I learn that the same people I called to help save my mother were the ones who killed my mother. 
I lost all trust in the police. I I remember that to protect and serve was always on the New Orleans Police Department police cars, and now it's not anymore. I take it as a sign of them no longer protecting and serving. My mother died because she stood up for her civil rights and the young people in the lower ninth ward. Taking a stand should not mean taking a death sentence. Mm. So, after Hardy shot Kim Groves, he called Len Davis. And on the FBI tapes, you can hear him and Sammy Williams celebrate. Davis paid Paul Hardy $300 to commit this murder. It's just, there's so many layers to this that are upsetting. This mother was taken from her family for standing up for what was right. And that was only worth $300 to these people. Not that like you can put a price on a human. Right. But $300 fucking dollars. And the FBI knew The FBI knew this was happening and did not shut the case down. Correction. Actually, the day after the murder, they shut down the investigation because they realized that they had let it get out of hand. I mean, like covering these cases, I'm always horrified, right? But to hear it from the perspective of a 13-year-old, like, that's just like, I don't know. It's chilling. And this... This child will hold this with her forever. I mean, she did this, this note that she wrote for the ACLU, like it's a more recent piece of writing that she's still holding on to this trauma because of course she is. I like can't even wrap my head around it. That's the, that's beyond horrible. And yeah, 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 it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. So the FBI insists they didn't know a murder for hire scheme was unfolding in these recordings, but commonly understood police terms were used by Len Davis and his accomplices to discuss the crime. Like, if the FBI didn't know what was going on, they honestly have no business investigating crime, especially police crime. But they were not ultimately held accountable for Kim's death. Nine officers, including Sammy Williams and Len Davis, were arrested as a result of the FBI investigation. Davis, Paul Hardy, and another man, Damon Causey, who allegedly hid the murder weapon, was also arrested and faced federal charges for the murder of Kim Groves, as well as civil rights violations. Sammy Williams ended up striking a deal with the U.S. attorney, agreeing to testify against the people in the trio for a lesser charge of cocaine possession. I personally think that he shouldn't have been allowed to do that, but whatever. Um, Davis, Hardy, and Causey were held without bond, as well as two other officers who had recorded threats against federal agents throughout the investigation. As a small aside, but while the feds were building the case against Davis, Another police officer, Antoinette Frank, killed three people while attempting to rob a restaurant, 
And this is a case that we'll cover later, but I want to mention it now, just so you can have an idea of what New Orleans looked like at the time. Like this city was being terrorized by the people who were supposed to protect them. And like, that's why going back to what we were talking about earlier, people couldn't possibly comprehend why I wouldn't want to call the police. Like imagine living in this city, in these communities. Would you want to call the police for anything at all? No. Let me think about a lot of times when people tell their stories of police brutality, which are vast. People are like, well, did you report them? Like, why didn't you file a report then? Because then they kill you. Because then they literally kill you. Like, that is what Kim Groves tried to do. That's what the story is. And not only do they kill you, but even if they're being watched, no no one is stopping it. No one's stepping in the way. No one is stepping in the way. And I know people are going to be like, oh, well, this is just one case. It's not that common. But, like, this is the case where they got caught. Also, how dare you say it's one case? Like, tell, it's tell just that, one case. That's some. This is a person's life. Tell that to Kim Groves' daughter. That It's just one case. This doesn't happen that often. Tell her. Yeah. I just can't imagine being that dismissive of a human life. Yeah. During the trial, Davis's defense team tried to point fingers at Kim's boyfriend, who was known to be abu- abusive, and tried to make it seem like it was a drug-related crime, especially because Kim did have drugs in her system when she died. However, between the FBI tapes, the ballistic evidence, and the testimony from Williams, Davis didn't have a case. He didn't testify in his own defense and was convicted and pretty swiftly sentenced to the death penalty. So while Davis was sentenced to the death penalty, Damon Causey, who helped hide the gun, was offered a plea bargain if he would testify against Davis. But he didn't take it. He wanted to remain loyal. And so he was ultimately also given a life sentence, as was Paul Hardy. In the months following Davis's conviction, the seven officers accused, along with Davis and Williams, of participating in the drug ring, pled guilty and received sentences ranging from five to eight years in prison. They were Bryant Brown, Adam Dees, Sheldon Polk, Carlos Rodriguez, Edwin Williams, Keith Johnson, and Christopher Evans. All of them have since been released. And sorry, what was their involvement? They were all involved in the drug ring. Okay. Sorry, I know there's a lot of twists and turns with this case. There's just so much crime that these officers committed. It's hard to follow. Um, Davis was also convicted on the drug charges, and he was actually um, found guilty after only 40 minutes of jury deliberation. So because he was convicted of also violating um, Kim Groves' rights, which is a federal crime, he is at a federal death row facility in Terre Haute, which is actually not far from my hometown and part of why I know about this case. Um, All of the death row inmates for, a lot of the death row inmates for the federal government are held there. Mm -hmm. Sammy Williams, was ultimately sentenced to just five years in prison because he testified against Davis in both trials. What's funny is that the judge told him that he irrevocably stained the uniform he once wore. But as we've talked about, police commit these crimes all the time. The uniform is the stain. The uniform means nothing. Like you said, the uniform is the stain. 
I also want to note that while the judge said that, the judge also praised Williams and thanked him for testifying and helping convict the other men involved. In 2018, 24 years after Kim Grove's death, her family was awarded $1.5 million in a lawsuit that will be paid to her children over four years. Um, that money will never bring her back. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it took 24 years for her family to get it is disgusting. Disgusting and honestly, like, $1.5 million, really? Like, really? After everything they've been through and the FBI's involvement? I, yeah. yeah. At Hardy's resentencing in 2011, Kim Groves' son, Corey Groves, said he was so angry for a time about his mother's murder that he desperately wanted to get stopped by a New Orleans PD officer so that he could kill one of them or force them to kill him. He said those feelings have subsided, but that his mother's death definitely changed his life overnight. Mm. And that is kind of the end of the case. And I wanted to kind of end on that quote because that gets back to like the beginning of this crime. We talked about how Len Davis had been a witness to so much violence in his childhood and that likely had an influence on him to commit the crimes that he did. But Corey Groves' mother was murdered by a police officer and he hasn't gone out and behaved in the way that Len Davis did. Not to say that like people shouldn't get some grace for their trauma, but like his trauma is not an excuse for the crimes that he committed. Absolutely not. I think the relevance of his trauma is that these things didn't have to go the way that they did. There were so many places where there could have been intervention. Not that he isn't completely and utterly responsible for his actions. Yeah, because this crime could have been stopped at so many points. I mean, the first being we address the violence in Len Davis's community as a child. I think that's why I wanted to talk about this case, because obviously he was a police officer committing crime all the time, getting written up all the time. He shouldn't have been a police officer. And then this never would have happened. But like, let's talk about the violence in his community that he ended up perpetuating later leading to this. Yeah. And let's talk about like how becoming a police officer is fed to people, to young people in low income communities that experience a lot of violence as like the best option. Yeah. As like a quote unquote way out. And they're told, oh, well, you can give back to your community with the corruption that exists there. Like, first of all, you can't. Let's start right there. But also, like. It's not your way out of the bad shit that's happening in your neighborhood when there's just bad shit happening in the police department. It's like. (laughs) It's like, why are we feeding a way out when we could like be actually investing so that like we're like not it's just this whole thing of making people disposable it's trading one harm for another mm-hmm. it's like do you want to be the do you want to cause harm or do you want to be harmed and those are your options yeah and like 
truth be told, when you're thinking about like an abolitionist resolution to this case, like, yeah, I think that as someone who just doesn't really believe in prison, like that's where this guy needs to be right now. Like, yeah, the, like unless we're going to address the material conditions that led him to do what he did, like he is a huge threat to his community. Like he, I can't get over them pumping crack into those communities. Like that is what makes me the most upset about this case. I I, other than obviously like and gross death, like that is appalling. But also how many people did they kill by allowing crack to be funneled into those communities? Right. It, it, it's incredibly layered. The, the celebrating really, really deeply disturbs me. And to me, to be at that, that disconnected from any sort of value for human life, like, as an abolitionist, I fundamentally don't believe anyone is, like, quote-unquote, too far gone. But that makes me question that. Yeah. Yeah. Very upsetting case. Yeah, Very complicated case. But I think this really goes to show what we're trying to show people with this podcast. Like, there are people in the police department who are very, very bad people. And they're being allowed to commit state-sanctioned violence on the job. And that's not even getting into what they're doing off the job. This was literally state-sanctioned murder. Like, the fact the FBI was listening. Like, that's literally state-sanctioned state sanctioned well and the other thing that i think we have to talk about with that too is these are black people in a black city Mm -hmm. so why would the fbi care to stop this woman's murder why would the police care to address how drugs are getting into these communities because there and there's no there's no motivation because they don't they they think the optics are in their favor right they're like oh this black woman who's a drug addict is how they're looking at it like and the way he immediately tried to point to her usage of drugs as an a way out of what he so obviously did i mean we yeah. can, we could talk about this forever how how drugs are used how drugs are funneled into these communities and then used as a way to devalue those people that are in the communities. Yeah. I mean, this is the perfect example of it, but I, I do at one point want to do an episode about like how crack really came into these neighborhoods in the first place. Um, but I know this is really heavy and I, I almost don't want to leave on like this really heavy moment but there's like not a lot of good to come out of this but one more quote that I do want to leave with because it's a good quote by the prosecutor who I like I'm sure would not think this way when he was talking about like perpetrators of crime but I want to just address how he talked about Um, Kim Groves' addiction. 
Some people who are more affluent can go to the Betty Ford Clinic. Kim Groves had to deal with her addiction every day. She had crack in her system, so what? Maybe it made her feel better and got her through the day easier. Now, I don't know that the prosecutor thinks that way when he's talking about everybody, but I think if we had more people in our justice system that had that kind of thinking, that showed that kind of grace mm-hmm. towards people struggling with addiction, we would be in a lot better place. I absolutely agree. Kim Groves, Kim Groves was a mother struggling to support her family in a terrible environment, and she did it. She did it up until the day she died. So that's that. That's the case. How are you feeling? I feel like you're... That one was just particular. Just hearing from the daughter was so... And I wanted to, like, make sure that we heard from her because I don't think that anything I could say could replace those words. It made it it made it so much more real. Yeah. And that's the thing. These are real people yeah. that are experiencing this. These are real people who are still around today. And I think like that's the other thing. I'm sure that this case is very traumatic for Kim's family to talk about. And so if we're gonna talk about it, I wanna use their words. Like I don't wanna have to speak over them in that yeah. way. No, yeah. Not yeah, passing the mic. So, knowing that this one is heavy, I'm going to be honest, the next few are also looking a little heavy. I think it's tough. Like, I think that, like, this series that we're doing, like, inevitably it's going to be kind of heavy because we're talking about people who are supposed to protect you doing terrible things. And we're trying to do true crime in a way that's, like, ethical, which is really tough. Like, the fact that I've listened to true crime podcasts and walked away being like, do to do is disturbing. It is disturbing. And I was thinking about that a lot with like the whole Jeffrey Dahmer thing coming back because they have that new series. And um, actually some of the families of his victims going on social media and being like, we don't support this. And we don't like the way that like they're talking about the case. Like, I don't know. I don't want to be those people. I I hope that like we're not doing that because I do think some people are going to walk away from that series and be like oh what a great tv show about this terrible serial killer and I hope that like not that I hope people walk away from listening to our episodes and feel terrible right like, I don't want you I don't want you the listener to feel terrible but like I don't think that there's a way that we can talk about this without you feeling the weight of it yeah and I don't think there's a way sh- I don't think it should be talked about if it's not going to be the weight and if that means that you're not listening to it as your morning getting ready podcast like that's okay sense (laughs) that's okay listen to cops in the culture as you get ready and then like wait until you can like handle the seriousness of these cases to treat it like a heavy meal you know like take your time allow time for it to digest give yourself rest after But also dialogue with us about it. Mm. Not to like be that person, but like we have a Twitter now, we have an Instagram, we have a TikTok, we have the Google Forms. Like we 
have our reviews. Like we want to hear from you all as you listen to these cases, like maybe questions you have, maybe this course that you want to start. Like, um, I know this so far, this was the heaviest case for me. Mm -hmm. And I am really curious how people are going to take it in because of that. So I want to hear from people like followers on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it is. And like, talk to us about how you're feeling and like how this is maybe making you change your perspective on policing or even just how it's, I don't know. I, I want to hear. From- yeah. How it's sitting with you. I mean, at the center of abolitionist community, and I would really, really hope that this podcast is built, builds a strong community. Like that would, that would be the dream for me. Me too. I, I was really excited with one of the TikToks I posted about why I wasn't going to call the police for that mail thing. Mm -hmm. Somebody responded and was like, hey, this like really got me thinking. Like I hadn't thought about why people might not want to call the police. And like, this is going to make me change how I think about situations that involve the police or don't involve the police. And I was like, oh my God, that's the point. Like, that's what I'm trying to get you to think about. Like, that's what everyone should be thinking about like that's how we like face police out of our society and like i'm hoping that this can also be that for people yeah and tell us if it is and if it's not like tell us what would help it be like that like if you have or what you are getting from it because like i'm definitely a believer in like knowledge is knowledge is shared in community and like when we interact we can no longer be the beholders of knowledge you know like we get to all kind of build and grow that together so yeah yeah. i would love to i'd love to hear so you know not to plug again but (laughs) all of our socials are out there they're in our link trees and everything um i'm gonna also start including some of the background research articles that i'm using for these cases in our link tree for people who want to learn more um because you know I want to be transparent about where we're getting this information. Um, And let's start a dialogue. Let's start a community. Follow us, talk to us, and thank you all so much for listening. Um, We've gotten some really good reviews recently. I know we hit a thousand listens on our first episode the other day, which is so thank you all so much for listening so far and like, let us know how, how this is hitting you. Yeah, let us know. Thank you for listening and we'll hear you next week or you'll hear us.